Star Trek. I think Star Trek has some of the best sound effects in, in the uh, sci-fi biz, one of the things that's kept them around. And uh, so I was pretty excited when I saw on the subreddit that uh, Kabi Linux, Kabi Linux, K-A-B-I Linux, uh, he said, he wrote this post saying, hoping some here will like this, but if you have the package SOX installed, that's S-O-X, you can run the, com- the code below in the terminal and it will pump out what sounds like the hum of the Enterprise uh, without the wobble, unfortunately, but you also don't need the warp core. So you first have to have the uh, the socks package installed on your machine, and then you run this uh, this uh, play command here. And uh, when you, once you hit play, it creates the engine sound effect of the Enterprise D, which is pretty cool white noise effect. And then uh, if you're like a professional internet broadcaster, you'll have like other you'll have other sounds ready to go, like uh, Star Trek bridge sounds. And then it really sounds like you're on the you're in Star Trek now, which is pretty cool. Just using socks, I got a kick out of that. So uh, you don't have to have. Although I mean, I added the sound effects from the bridge. But there you go. So maybe instead of doing Linux Unplug this time today, we'll do Star Trek Unplug. You think that'd be a hit? I think we tried that once. I don't think it worked <laughs> very well. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that spent more time in a spreadsheet this week than the last 10 years. My name is Chris, and we have a heck of an episode for you. This is episode 94 of the Linux Unplugged show. And uh, joining us in just a little bit will be Michael Arabelle from Pharonix to discuss a new initiative he's working on, Linux benchmarking automated style. You know, wouldn't it be interesting to track the progress of some of the most important projects like, oh, I don't know, the Linux kernel, GCC... LLVM, when they release new builds, how does that impact their performance? Well, over at linuxbenchmarking.com, Michael has set out just to find that out, automated builds after new releases with charts. Go in there and say, how has the Linux kernel been trending the last six months? And this site might just show you. What's this initiative all about and what is his goal? We'll talk to him today. Also, we'll give him a little congrats on the 11th year of pharonix.com, so that'll be coming up. And then later in the show, we're going to talk about Fedora 22, a new release that just hit the web today. I installed it. I've got some initial reactions. We're going to give you a full review on Sunday's Linux Action Show. But today, I ran into a snag or two that you might run into if you have a certain make NVIDIA card that will prevent GDM from starting. I'll tell you how to fix that in today's episode and give you my first reactions, get some mumble room takes. But before we get to any of that, uh, we do have uh, some serious business to get to. Yes, some unfortunate sad news. Every now and then, a great distribution comes and goes. Sometimes the company and people behind them come and go. And this week, it appears to be official. Mandriva, the company behind the Linux distribution so many of us, so, so many of us started out with, is officially going away. Yes, apparently, according to a post over in Germany, or maybe it was France, (laughs) there's a translation. Thankfully, uh, Phronix has one for us. Uh, even though the company made $553,000 last year, not enough for 10 to 19 employees. Mandriva as a company is now being liquidated. And uh, to help reflect on this once great distribution, I'll bring in our Mumble Room. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello. Hey. So uh, any Mandriva users, I- say I. Any Mandriva users in here or Mandrake users back in the day? I. 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 Me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of sad. That's I mean, got me started. Yeah, really was. I mean, I, I probably started with Debian and Red Hat technically, but when, when, I, when it came time for uh, Linux for me that I wanted to cut my teeth on and use for on my systems, I used uh, Mandrake. And I even became a Mandrake Club member. I was in the Mandrake Club, so I got the special, uh, 
you RPMI repos. I felt pretty cool. And uh, I don't know what this means for the offshoots, like Mandriva and others. Magia. Moondrake, was that the other one, Rotten Corpse? Yeah, there was Moondrake. And uh, well, I think that was a spinoff of uh, the original Mandrake. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it means for those guys. but uh, And Open Mandriva, of course, like that. There doesn't seem to have been like a lot of interest taking up in those, though. Mandrake 8. Yep, Mandrake 8 whiskey. I had that in the box. That was great. Mandrake 8 in the box was great. You know, one of the great things about Mandrake back in the day was that it had the Drac config. Uh, let's see if I can find a picture of this Mandrake Drac config. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, open or Drac Conf. That's what it was, Drac Conf. Open Sousa, of course, had Yast, which was, you know, pretty great. Uh, but I felt like, uh, in some ways, Linux Mandrake's DracConf had the leg up when it came to, like, the Samba automation and user creation and just managing services. It just felt like a quicker, faster tool. Boy, looking back at it now, it really looks antiquated. Uh, but this was sort of, like, this was sort of your only front-end option, really, when, when configuring X really meant getting into your XORG comp file. And if you just, you know, didn't want to hassle with that stuff... This, this was so perfect. And it did get more refined over the years, and it, and it got forked. It's still out there in different iterations. But there was a time where I was able to you know, fully set up Active Directory authentication, um, automated NTP setup, all these things that you just had to do by hand back then in Linux. Wi-Fi, like when Wi-Fi was, was brand new, like Mandrake made it easiest to get it working back then. It, it just it was a really it was a really great distro and the other thing they did, and they give you really you know straightforward front end uh, options for starting and stopping services. The other thing they did early on is they they provided a really solid solution to how crappy RPMs were. You know uh, they they had URPMI, which really was a, a in some ways maybe better than Yum maybe not I don't know anymore DNF like who who could say. But it was definitely way better than any other RPM-based distro out there. This was really, in my opinion, the usable RPM-based distro at the time because of URPMI. And then they had like a, you know, one of the first source software source managers where you could manage between online sources, update sources, and CDs. And again, SUSE got all that in Yast pretty quickly. But that's what made Mandrake work so well, I think, for people. And man, they had the best installer. They, Mandrake, Mandrake had the, the, a, really, uh, a really unique installer where the progress was all down on the left-hand side of the installer. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. Yeah, I don't know if you guys remember this. They also had the best partitioner back in the day, too. They really had a great partitioner. Uh, and, and so you always knew right where you're at in the installation process, and you could jump back and forth. And they kept that look for years. They, they refined it over time and made it look a little better, but they kept that basic functionality. So I'm showing you right here, I'm showing you like, uh, this is like a super old version of Mandrake, and then here's Mandrake 9.1, and then here is Mandrake 2005, and they, they kept that, that ni- and here's 9.1 again, they kept that uh, list along the side. It was so cool. I, I, I think they had, and they had a great text installer too, if you had to go that route. Oh man! Oh wow! Oh this this screenshot Mandrake Linux eight here it is. This was my bag back in the day. Oh wow! This is so old looking now. Oh, I can't really get any better on it. You know, and 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 they they were uh, one of the first to make it easy to use RiserFS too. Like they made it super easy to use journaled file systems when journaled file systems were brand new to Linux. 
and they had uh, they had security things you could do in the installation that would sort of tell you how secure it was going to be and give you sort of like a report. Um, you could make a uh, a boot disk during the installation, so in case you ever screwed up your 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 bootloader installation during the installer process, it would ask you if you wanted to make. A, of course, it'd be it to a floppy disk because back then everybody had floppy disks. But it would, it would make you an emergency bootloader floppy disk that you could always get back into your Linux installation with if you somehow hosed your bootloader. How come we don't do that now? Why did we stop doing that? And then, of course, because X was a total monster back then, the last thing you did in the installation, because it was actually technically it was fine if at this point the installation totally locked up because everything was pretty much done. I don't, know about, I don't know if it was unmounted the file systems, but beyond that, pretty much everything was done. So the last thing it would do is launch their super cool X configuration thing where you'd go into this X configurator and it had arrows along the edges of the screen so you could see if you were, had overscan on your CRT monitor and you could tweak it back in and position it just right and then save that and it would write your XORG config for your... It wasn't even XORG back then, it was just X11. It would write your X11 config and, and that was... And they'd put it intentionally. You can, if you're watching the video version, you can see it's the last step right there. They did it intentionally because that was always the thing that crashed. Because you didn't, you had to tell it what your video card was. You had to tell it everything about your, you had to tell it the, the, what your monitor's capable of doing. It couldn't detect any of that. And a lot of times the CRT monitors were very particular. And so, oh, and so were the early LCD monitors. And they had, again, one of the best setups to do that, 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 that final X11 step. Uh, it, almost, it almost makes me want to go find an ISO and do it one more time, except for old Linux is actually never quite as great as you remember <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mumble Room, you guys have any uh, passing uh, Mandriva or Mandrake thoughts you want to share before uh, before we move on? I think well, it was time. They haven't, they didn't have anything in their final few years that made them stand out, and the community fell away. Went to their forked products. It they didn't need to keep going on because they had yeah. nothing left. Well, and, and they were they were of a product of a different time uh, where, uh, you know, you had these problems, like you had to have the XF, XF, the, the X config. You, you had to have uh, XF8, XF86 config was the command. Uh, thank you, Minimic. Uh, you, had to have, you had to have things like that. You also, at the end of the installation, towards the end of the installation, had to figure out how was the user going to get online because it, it was an assumed they didn't even have an Ethernet port. They might have had USB, but they probably had an ISP that required something like PPOE or PPTP, you know, and so they had to build these things in. They had to accommodate for these. And then later on, you know, when, when the new generation of distributions came around, they didn't have to really account for kinds of these things. Now, Colonel Linux, I wanted to give you a chance. Were you a Mandrake user back in the day? So Mandrake Linux was actually the first Linux I ever used. Yeah. And I, I had, I, 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 um, I'd been asking around uh, if if anyone knew of this Linux or where I could obtain it, and finally I found a guy that that you know said, oh here I got a copy for you. So he gave it to me on a CD, and I remember sticking it in my computer, and I was all excited because I was going to try this Linux thing that was going to be more stable and more secure, and was going to do everything for me. I stick the CD in there, and I boot off of it, and I remember an X showed up. <laughs> the cursor was an X back then, and I was so yes. excited because I was like, I-, I remember thinking to myself, wow, what an awesome cursor replacement at X rather than an arrow. That makes so much sense. And it really didn't make any sense. I was just happy that it was not Microsoft. And I booted into Linux and I was so excited. I was like, oh, look, it comes with games and it comes 
with the word processor and wait, network doesn't work and sound doesn't work. And my display is limited to 800 by 600. And here's yeah. a couple other things that don't yeah. work. So, all right, no problem. Played with it for a couple of days and decided I'm going to go back to, to Windows. I stick my, at the time, I think it was Windows ME or Windows 2000. I stick the disc back in there and it didn't recognize the, the, the partition that Mandrake had used. And so it just didn't see my hard drive. And I just didn't have a computer with the internet for like three months. And after that experience, and when I finally did get it fixed, I swore I would never touch Linux again because it was such a horrible experience. Oh, well, good thing that didn't stick. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, I remember I also, uh, I was such a Mandrake fan. I tried out their Mandrake Enterprise servers that they rolled out. The first Squid Proxy server I ever deployed ran on Mandrake using Mandrake in a server edition. Um, like I said, I became a Mandrake club member, whatever they called it back then. I was all in. I was, I was all, I bought every box set that they, they, they sold. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. Um, so, uh, hope and our, and our best to, uh, to the Mandrake uh, folks and, uh, the Mandriva company and, uh, to the offshoots that continue on in sort of their legacy. So that is being very nostalgic now let's go to the total opposite end of the spectrum, and uh, this is so cool, and it really does make it feel like 2015. Soon you're going to be able to share your smartphone GPS location information with the location services built into the GNOME desktop to make that more accurate. And you might be wondering why, but it actually is sort of useful. Uh, the GNOME desktop derives a lot of information when you allow it based on your IP location primarily, uh, unless you actually have a computer with a GPS chip in it that talks to the Linux system. And what it does, but the things I'm aware of, and I'm sure there's many more, is it sets things like automatically your time zone, best NTP server, calendar settings, uh, a lot of little things like this. And the more accurate you get that, the better GNOME is, especially if you're in a laptop and you're traveling. Like, say, take Noah, for example, when he's in Grand Forks right now, and then he comes over here to, to the JB1 studio. Uh, if GNOME is aware of his location, it'll automatically adjust his clock and, and his calendar appointment reminders for him to be in this time zone. And so uh, as part of the uh, Google Summer of Code project, there is a developer who is aiming to set up an app that will share lo- location information when uh, you have this other companion app on the Android device called GeoClue. Uh, and this is pretty cool. A GPS position is something that most of us are obviously pretty familiar with, but you might not always understand why. So this is kind of be a way you could play with it on your Linux desktop without having to have a GPS chip in your computer to see if there's any value in it. I think that's kind of neat. And they're adding more and more things in GNOME, like maps and things like that, that could use this. Plus, you've got to assume other projects could take advantage of this. Uh, so each time the Android location listener application in the background gets a new location, which Android's doing this all the time for Google Now or for your weather checking application, or you know what the way it works on Android is for the most part, not always, but for the most part, if an application needs location, it just asks the location service instead of having to hit the GPS itself. Because if another application just checked 55 milliseconds ago, five minutes ago, why hit the GPS antenna again when you can just check that database? So that's essentially what the service does. So anytime that database is updated, this app also gets notified. This uh, GeoClue. Using MDNS on your Wi-Fi network, it'll auto-discover the companion app running on your GNOME desktop. And anytime that location database gets updated on Android, a copy of that no- notification will be sent over the network, over Wi-Fi, to the companion app on your GNOME desktop. So any app that checks the location on your Android device will then also update the location information for GNOME. So you kind of get the benefit of uh, getting constant location information without having to hit your battery really hard because it's just hitting it when the other apps are already hitting it. Um, And of course, you could just turn off the bridging app if you didn't want to use that or or not use it. I think it's an interesting start and it's an interesting use of Google Summer of Code and it could make uh, the location-based stuff that we're seeing the GNOME uh, project work on more relevant without having to have expensive hardware 
in your laptop or desktop. Because I'm never going to put a GPS. I might maybe one day have like an LTE card in a laptop that has GPS built in. That'd be pretty cool. But I'm never going to have that in my Arch desktop upstairs in my office. So now I can take advantage of some of those same location things using that without a big battery drain. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, you can also power other machines. It's not just a – this is the other thing I thought was interesting is you could have like five of your desktops to this one Android device. So five of your GNOME desktops, for example, could all be getting location if they're all all in the same spot. So it's not a one-to-one ratio. So one phone can update the location for multiple desktops as well, which is kind of a neat feature, I think. I'll tell you about another neat feature. That'd be our next sponsor right here on the Linux Unplugged program, and that is our friends over at Ting. Go to linux.ting.com to get a limited-time $50 discount off your first Ting device, or if you have a Ting-compatible device, they'll give you a $50 service credit. Now, when I signed up, I got a $25 service credit, and that paid for more than my first month. So I can only imagine what $50 is going to do for you guys. Well, I, I, or really, just go get a brand-new device. Ting has a great range of devices uh, from starting literally like around $50 for a feature phone all the way up to the best Android phones and iPhones out on the market today. And they just recently added the OnePlus, which you can get right from Ting, which is really great. So go to linux.ting.com to take advantage of that $50 discount. Now, why Ting's service? Why switch to Ting? First of all, I think you're going to like the fact that you only pay for what you use. Finally, right? That's how it should always be. And sometimes outside the U.S. that is how it is, but not here in the U.S. We have a duopoly in place. This duopoly controls the market with a strong arm that you wouldn't believe. And so there's very little flexibility in here. So Ting had to come up with a whole new way to do this. So they do only you only pay for what you use. It's just flat $6 for the line. And then your usage on top of that, you just take your minutes, your message, your megabytes, whatever bucket you fall into, that's all you have to pay. That's really super nice because then if you want to have multiple devices for testing applications or maybe you have a small business or maybe like in my case, I have a nanny that is, I can't really afford to pay for her phone all the time, but if I only pay for it when she needs it because of some sort of emergency, that is absolutely worth it for me. And that's why I love the Ting service. It's based around me and my usage, not my individual devices, which I think is a superior model to begin with. And they have no hold customer service. So if I give the phone to somebody and they have problems, they call Ting at one 855 ting ftw And a real human being will answer the phone so I don't have to get stuck doing the troubleshooting. I really like that. I just don't want to get tied down helping people with all of the little technical issues. So the fact that I can hand that off to Ting, they also have a really good help site. So like in case of Rekai, he doesn't ever have to call in. He'll just go to the Ting help service and he can just take care of all his problems that way. So it's got a, there's a great range depending on your ability. So it makes it great for a small business or a family. I love that. So go to linux.ting.com. Start there to get our special discount. That'll give you a $50 discount off all of their great devices. Then you can check out the fact that they have like an early termination relief program. So if you're stuck in a stupid contract right now, they're going to help you get out of that with their ETF program. Check that out. And, of course, your phone's going to be unlocked, so you're going to get long-term value out of it. So here's what you do. You go to linux.ting.com. Check them out. Also check out their blog. Like they just recently posted this video. Now this video isn't narrated. But I think I'm going to do the narration for them right now. They can just do this for free. Ting, I'm doing this for you. So this is a Ting tip, and I'm putting this out here because it's probably good for you guys to automatically download podcasts over Wi-Fi. If you're using Pocket Cast, you open up the Pocket Cast app, and then once it's in there, open up the settings menu. You go to that little hamburger menu. It slides out. And then go down into the settings cog at the bottom of that. Then select episode updates in the app. It's the second option. And then in there, there's the option check enabled under uh, auto download, say enabled, automatically download, and then make sure 
only on Wi-Fi. So that way, when new episodes come out, it'll automatically download the new episode, but it won't do it when you're on cellular. That's kind of the best of both worlds. So when the new Linux Unplugged, hey, look, there's Linux Action Show right there. When the new Linux Action Show comes out in HD, you don't have to feel guilty about being doing the uh, high download, but you also get it automatically. That's how I do my Pocket Cast. Uh, is I have it set to auto-download every show that comes out. I keep the last two to three episodes, depending on the podcast, and I have it set to only download when I'm on Wi-Fi. And so when I'm on the road, I get an, I get an idea of what I have coming up, and I could opt to download over cellular if it's really important to me, and I do sometimes do that. But really what I do is as soon as I get on my Wi-Fi connection, Pocket Cast just starts pulling all of them down for me, and the next time I'm on the road, they're ready to go. And I, didn't, I did not use any wireless data, and so I'm not paying for any wireless data. And that's just a great way you can, if you're just a little bit technical savvy, just have a little savviness. You really don't have to have much. You can really leverage the way the Ting model works and save a ton of money. So go to linux.ting.com, use that savings calculator, see how much money you'd freaking save. I've saved over $2,000. And you can hit the savings calculator and find out how much you would save. linux.ting.com, and a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Okay. I have to mention something. Next week, the Linux Unplugged show is going to be live at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And I know you don't know what time that is in your time. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. You hear that, Popey? I'm talking to you. You Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your local time. But, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I have some uh, – yeah, uh, or I lied. We're doing it at 10 a.m. See, it's a good thing I'm checking the calendar. This is why you got to go to the calendar. We're doing Linux Unplugged at 10 a.m. So right after uh, Tech Talk next week, it's going to go Tech Talk and then Linux Unplugged on Tuesday next week. So just a little heads up, we're moving the uh, recording schedule for Linux Unplugged, and I'm making a big stink about it because uh, the mumble room is super important to the show, and I'd really like to have some people there. I love you guys. I love you so much. So important to me. So join me at 10 a.m. Pacific uh, for Linux Unplugged next Tuesday. Just moving it that week because uh, I have some family that's coming to town that I have to go pick up at the train station. And they're, See, this is what happens when family schedules stuff. They literally arrive at 2 p.m. when we would normally be going live. Like, could they have picked a more perfect time? I don't think so. So we're doing 10 a.m. next Tuesday, jblive.tv. Give us the Eastern time. Dude, I gave you a website that automatically converts the time zones for you so I can accommodate everybody. How much, how much more can I give? Jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Go take advantage of our robots. After all, I... I pay them in Bitcoin. You might as well use them for something. Okay, well, uh, I'm really excited to welcome back uh, Michael Larabelle from Phronics.com. Michael actually joined us back in 2012, shortly after he got gotten back from his visit with Valve, and we'd had all of the big Steam news for Linux. And uh, this week, I invited Michael back on the show because he's launched an initiative that I think is pretty interesting. And I want to see if I'm grokking this right, Michael. So I'm going to run it past you. Tell me if I've captured this right. But it looks like you're kind of taking all of the work you've done with the Pharonics benchmarking suite, all of, the, all of your experience you have with benchmarking for Pharonics website and, and, oh, and the Open Benchmark Project, and you are launching an automated testing site that essentially will be monitoring some of the most popular open source projects and trending their performance impact over time. Am I kind of grokking this? Hi, Chris. Uh, yes, you're um, mostly correct. It's basically to monitor the um, performance over time of important projects like the Linux kernel, the GCC compiler, LLVM and Clang. Um, and then I've also been working on some other trackers for like all the latest Arc Linux packages um, in real time and everything else like that. And you're doing this, you're doing these testing uh, and the results on a daily basis, correct? 
Uh, correct. Uh, majority of the trackers right now are running on daily time basis, but there's also the ability within the Phronix test suite to do per commit testing. So basically, whenever there's a new Git revision, that the triggers would automatically fire off the new round of testing. Uh, but for my testing over the past several months, I've just found the daily testing to be best off rather than uh, ha having so many triggers per day of kernel benchmarking when each kernel benchmark will end up taking several hours per system, etc. So, um, w first of all, I got to say, uh, if I'm if I'm following you correctly, uh, this sounds like a massive sacrifice of your man cave. Uh, I just finished uh, remodeling the basement and yeah, basically devoted entirely to this LinuxBenchmarking.com. Oh, I'm seeing that. Uh, <laughs> it looks like it was at one point going to be a very nice theater with a bar and a projector and a bench seat. <laughs> and you have well, it looks like it's now dedicated to a server farm for doing benchmarks. Um, beforehand, um, there's some pictures on one of the older Phronics articles that's linked from LinuxBenchmarking.com, but it was just like a complete wreck in the basement. Yeah. I actually just added the bar just because of uh, whenever there's uh, Phronics test suite customers over here, and then uh, the projector is just nice for seeing the real-time status of all the systems running. And Oh, I love it. So the bar, is, the bar is for the benchmarking. Oh, that is so cool. That is way cooler. <laughs> than I, I thought it was like some sort of sad sacrifice, and instead it is actually way more badass than that. You have a bar in your benchmark marketing suite that is really cool <laughs> so, me, so give me an so you say when customers come over uh what kind of what kind of customers come over for, for uh the pharonics benchmarking suite is it like a hardware manufacturers or can you give me a picture of what that's like because that's an, an area of your business that i don't have any uh, insights on at all oh uh, yeah it's basically for any enterprise customers for the pharonics test suite that either want customizations done for their um the pts or openbenchmarking.org to better um, suit their roles and whatnot uh, like one customer that's able to be talked about publicly is actually GE that sponsored much of this recent work, which in turn led to the LinuxBenchmarking.com is where they're rolling out thousands of servers where they run benchmarks every day entirely powered by the Phronix test suite yeah. and Foromatic. Uh, so uh, I'm sure for them and also really for the community in general, uh, JB Hawk of Truth in our chat room asked a great question. Uh, and uh, and uh, this is something that whenever you talk about benchmarks, people always will try to you know poke holes in how the benchmark is constructed or how it's ran. Uh, so JB Hawk of Truth in our chat room says, uh, could you give us an idea of who maintains the test cases used to measure the target application? Is that something you maintain or is that like an open source project? sort of like where uh, different people are contributing to that? Uh, do people add their own metrics from different projects? How is, how is that driven? Um, it's all powered by the Phronics test suite, which in turn pulls it from our openbenchmarking.org website that basically acts as the repository for all the test cases. Um, all those test cases are basically comprised of work that's done either by me or many other contributors. There's everything from like code weavers. They've uh, submitted like wine oh. test profiles for measuring that. And, yeah, it's basically an open project, and not anyone's able to um, recommend any new test cases or adapt their test cases and upload them where the test profiles for the Phronix test suite are just basically a few bash scripts and XML files. Right, I see. So people have updated, like, updated, like popular audio, audio encoding tests to the open benchmarking site. And uh, so if I, for example, in Jupyter Broadcasting, if we developed a benchmark maybe for, like, FFmpeg encoding setups, we could essentially upload, like, an FFmpeg benchmarking script test suite and then if the community liked it and it got popular then it would sort of become a well-known is that how it works um yes indeed that's correct and though uh, actually there is already ffmpeg uh benchmark sure. in there yeah, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah basically anyone can submit new test profiles and from there it rolls out to anyone that's doing a public or private deployment of the phronics test suite including uh 
linuxbenchmarking.com, which is uh, different than all the other tests. Um, well, to back up a few steps, like Red Hat, uh, Canonical, and others also maintain their own um, benchmarks against the latest, latest Linux kernel and whatnot. But yeah, their test cases are often limited without any intervention, and they're also often focused just around their use cases of like Apache web server performance or other scientific areas rather than, say, running a Linux gaming benchmark, since the Linux gaming benchmarks or Linux gaming customers aren't what leads to lots of their revenue. Is that a fan behind you, I hear? Uh, yeah, it's actually just one of the servers that was just rebooting because it's now <laughs> yeah, getting ready for its new round of testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is exactly what I thought it was. Man, those things are just uh, banshees when you reboot them. Uh, so I, I, when I look at this, I think a daily GCC benchmarks, uh, daily Linux kernel benchmarks. What's driving you to do this? What's what's the core reason? What what is the core benefit of making this information public and putting it out there like this? Why not keep it some secret sauce you can use for uh, special pharaonics reports and things like that? Uh, it's mostly just being dissatisfied over all these years with how many regressions still enter, mainly the Linux kernel. But yeah, there's also regressions in many other projects out there um, that there just isn't much action being done about any upstream yeah. latest git trying to be universal benchmarking right because you have like besides red hat not caring about like gaming benchmarks uh they and like other distribution vendors often just care about testing the kernels they're going to ship in their next product as opposed to the very latest git code right and so i i feel like uh you touched on something that i have noticed is an undercone an under an under current an undertone in your writing uh, i you you i i get the sense really hate regressions. And uh, you, I think, in some ways, are driven to find when regressions happen and, 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 and point that out based on data uh, to the best of your ability. Is it, are, are, do you feel finding regressions and helping people fix them, identify them, is that part of what drives you to do all of this benchmarking and do all of this? Is it, are you a regression hater? Uh, I mostly just hate um, regressions, yes, but um, I'm just really interested in Linux hardware and trying to ensure everything achieves their peak performance possible under Linux. So this is the disconnect that I don't get. So uh, how does it not, it seems like then you would be in a position where you would be constantly tormented because uh, you're going to see regressions everywhere because that happens in software development and they're right there out there for everybody to see in open source. But also, you know, you've run the numbers. A lot of times you can run the same benchmark for, a, say, an open GL application or a game and get a much better result using a proprietary driver on Windows than you might get with a proprietary driver on Linux. So how does somebody who's constantly checking for the best performance and who has uh, you know a little bit of regression hate how do you not just get frustrated with Linux here you are almost 11 years into Pharaonics I, I would think by now you would have pulled your hair out <laughs> I pulled plenty of hair out but overall Linux performance is still pretty much on par with Windows there's certainly um, some cases where it's not but it's improving a lot, and it is frustrating, though, when you see such performance strides being made, and then all of a sudden, in the next kernel release, you see your battery um, power usage just yeah, yeah. go horribly, yeah. and no one notices it until after the kernel ships. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I, uh, I just, I've, I've always wondered when I'm reading that. Uh, and so, I think now... You know, with, this, with these benchmarks, I look at this and I think, I wonder if maybe it's time to sort of try to incorporate these kinds of benchmarks into reviews even. Like, do you see the possibility there for uh, – or where do you really see this going? Do you see it more for hardware makers and uh, big projects or do you see it more as uh, – more used by the community? Where, where is the – where do you see it going? Is it more of a community effort or more of an enterprise effort? Uh, in terms of LinuxBenchmarking.com, it's a community effort. But with the Phronics Test Suite and Foromatic, anyone is able to – 
test out their own software on their own hardware and everything along those lines. And there's uh, plenty of behind the firewall formatic deployments for running all these benchmarks that various companies use. But yes, for LinuxBenchmarking.com, it's mostly just a community effort because I have to test out my latest code anyways that I'm shipping to customers. So I'm basically making all that data public and trying to be as most real world and applicable to the community as possible and all this data that I have to produce anyways. Well, uh, Michael, before we wrap up, I'm just curious. Obviously, uh, you follow the Linux news pretty closely. Uh, what in like big picture wise, what in what's going on out there in the last you know six months or so uh, or whatever that you find to be particularly interesting? That's a very good question. There's many things that's interesting to me right now. Uh, LLVM and Clang continue to be quite interesting. Um, particularly be, for how they're being adapted by so many different projects. Mm. And now with um, Vulkan as basically the next generation OpenGL, that um, there's going to be the Spear V to LLVM converter, so all these other LLVM-based products will now be able to in- easily interact with the GPU. Um, that's one interesting area that always excites me over the past few years. Um, Ubuntu Snappy tends to be a little bit interesting. Like, I still have to read up a lot more on it, um, but they have a lot of nice plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that and, is. Um, great, I've noticed too. Uh, uh, you uh, you seem like a, fo- a close follower of the Fedora project as well. Are you? In, are you? What do you think about where Fedora is going? We're going to talk about twenty two today. Oh, I'm uh, quite happy with Fedora twenty two and Fedora twenty one for that matter. Um, I've had Fedora twenty two on a couple dozen systems now, and it's running fairly nicely. I've hit that Nuovo regression. That's a bit annoying. Um, and then, yeah, just the other day I hit an issue with the Wi-Fi where it's, I'm getting really awkward um, internet connection speeds out of it. But aside mm-hmm. from that, uh, Fedora 22 has been performing very nicely and it's mm-hmm. quite stable. I've tested it both under X11 and Wayland, and the Wayland experience has been pretty much on par now with X11. Yeah, that's going to be a big story. Uh, and I could see a specific angle there for your site, too, is, uh, as Wayland rolls out and more distributions start shipping it, there's going to be lots of performance regressions. There's going to be lots of new territory there. That's got to be a story you follow with some interest. Uh, yes, certainly. Overall, the performance under Wayland or X Wayland, for that matter, is pretty nice. With X, X Wayland right now on the GNOME shell, there's some issues just around... Uh, full screen, full screen apps not being redirected properly, mm. so there is a performance penalty. But at least according to the developers, that should be fixed in due time. So, right, there right. isn't anything too major. It's awesome. not like you're suddenly having the performance in half. It's just that it's down ten percent or so. I love, but, I love yeah, that's where we're at. Be. That's great. Right. That's, I mean, b- better than you might expect, I suppose. I, Heavens, Heavens Revenge wanted to ask you a question, Michael. Go ahead, Heavens, uh, ask away. Well, with the new release of Clang 3.6 and LLVM 3.6. Have you tried out the OpenMP support? As I have, and to have running on my system using a few test programs. So, do you have any benchmarks coming up with the OpenMP support for Clang? Yes, I will. Um, I, uh, a few months ago, I did run some of uh, Intel's OpenMP branch of LLVM and Clang. And then, yeah, now that everything in, um, is suddenly in Mayline, I am in the process of this week running some new benchmarks and will have those out either this week or next week. That's one thing I'm so excited for, and I'm very relieved that they finally have it merged into their master branch. Yeah, it's very great. And then um, their on LinuxBenchmarking.com is the latest LLVM and Clang benchmark results. And just yesterday, I updated the test scripts to make sure that it's installing the latest OpenMP runtime libraries. So within the next day or two, you might be able to see those results for that dozen or so systems um, organically switch over to the OpenMP support. Hmm. That's really cool. Daredevil, you had a question you wanted to ask, Michael. 
Indeed. Uh, I'd like to know as, you know, what are the kinds of features that would you like to see to come into the, to the kernel so that will help you better test uh, and do what you usually do? Ah. Because I'm interested in that. Um, there isn't any, like, one feature that I like right now, like the tracing features in the kernel are going nicely and everything else. It would be nice if there was, like, some universally expected benchmark flag for the kernel and user space that people would expect. Like right now, between the different uh, Linux graphics drivers for X11, they all have a different option for how to disable basically vBlank. There's no standardized way of yeah. doing that, and of course you want to disable vBlank, but like within the Phronix test suite and my scripts, I have to make sure that it accommodates every driver and make sure it checks or not, and then yeah, writes to their proper name and whatnot, that there's no just simple universal way to say, hey, um, we're going to benchmark, so basically make it in performant mode. Hmm. All right, all right. That makes that makes sense. Uh, so, Michael, my last question for you uh, it came from Corky in the chat room, and uh, just kind of curious: what is your main daily Linux driver? What is your setup? What distro, and what's it look like? Um, my distro right now is Fedora twenty one. I'll upgrade to Fedora twenty two in the next few days or a couple of weeks after I find out if FedUp is working nicely. <laughs> since I know when yeah. Fedora twenty one rolled out, that FedUp had some issues. Um, so, once I can be comfortable upgrading that, I'll do that. On my main production system, I'm using uh, Intel Hoswell, or actually, no, it's already Broadwell, um, Ultrabook, and that's, yeah, basically just using that driver since I'm not running any games or mm -hmm. anything graphically intensive on that system, and I can generally rely upon the Intel graphics driver to not give me any regressions for mode setting and other key functionality between kernel releases. Yeah, yeah, when you can when you can work, but when you can get by with the open source driver, it does make it... Uh, really nice. I ran into a snag in Fedora 22 that I'll talk about in our review in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, that was one like little snafu for me. But other than that, yeah, the open source driver just is, if you're not gaming, I can't believe where it's at now. It really, it really between that and the Intel stuff, it's it's you know looking back at 11 years of this stuff, it's it has come so far. Uh, you know, just looking at the nine years we've been doing the Linux Action Show, it is fundamentally different. I mean, listen to that discussion we had earlier about having this, how you set up Mandrake to where it's at now with these open source drivers. It blows my mind. All right, yeah, I had a lot of fun reminiscing over that with the Mandrake text config. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, uh, thanks so much for coming on and updating us. Great, uh, great initiative here. And folks, I want you to go check it out. Uh, it's really cool, and we'll have links to all of it in the show notes. Uh, Linux, it's LinuxBenchmarking.com, right, Michael? Uh, yes, that's correct, but I also have like linuxbenchmark.com and pretty much any other variety should also redirect there. So Nice score. No worries. Wow, that's a good score. That is some prime real estate right there. Uh, you uh, you, you uh, keep it up, and I'll be watching that. I'm curious to see after you've been pub publishing these results for a while to see what kind of trends show up and, uh, and things like that, especially in some of our, our favorite projects. And, Michael, of course, you are always welcome to uh, join us. We have an open mumble room, and you can stick, stick around for the rest of the show if you'd like. We're going to get into uh, some uh, taking care of some little bit more transitions to Linux. I, uh, I've tried to solve some, some issues for Angela and her switch that really came down to compatibility issues. I'm going to talk about what I did and how they worked. I've tried a couple of different suites, including Kingsoft, uh, different file formats, and Office 365. And I tried to go all in when I did Office 365, you know, integrate it into her desktop, give her a dock icon, make it feel like a true Excel experience. I'm going to tell you all about that here in a second. And then we're going to get into our Fedora 22 review, which I'm really excited to talk about. First, I got to tell you something I'm super passionate about, and that's DigitalOcean, the next sponsor of the Linux Unplugged program. What, 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 what? 
You don't know what DigitalOcean is. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server up in the sky. You need root access on a box that's super fast, connected to tier one bandwidth based on Linux, all SSDs throughout. That's DigitalOcean, and the value is incredible. You're going to get a root console. You can go right up to that website, HTML5, Bad Mamma Jamma, written in Go. You got to watch that thing from post all the way up to the login screen, and you can get your droplet created in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start only $5 a month. A month. $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte, a terabyte, a terabyte of transfer for $5 a month. Like when it's that price, it's obvious why I have four of them, isn't it? I mean, come on. Hello. It's nuts. And they have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Germany, and London. That one in Germany is brand new. It's super hot. They got great connectivity to all their neighbors. The individual hypervisors have 40 gigabit E connections, the fastest SSDs they've ever deployed. I want to put a droplet over there because it just sounds so dang fancy. Seriously. Plus, you know, help out our folks over in that neck of the woods, too. But let's talk about how you manage DigitalOcean. Because, yeah, you know, 55 seconds is pretty badass, <laughs> and the value is amazing. And the fact that it's all based on Linux and KVM is super killer, and the fact that they have great data centers everywhere is obviously essential. But it's that icing on top of that cake. Let's not lie. We all like that icing. That's DigitalOcean's interface. Their simple, intuitive control panel kicks butt. And power users can replicate it on a much larger scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API that they just revved brand new revision of the API, and I love hearing about how you guys take advantage of these APIs, and there's a ton of amazing applications. You know what? You know what? I got to go, go look at some of these apps. So here, go over to DigitalOcean.com right now. Remember our code DO Unplugged, and then click on that community, that community link right there, and then go over to the project section. And when you're in the project section, look at all of these freaking amazing applications written around the DigitalOcean API that you just get for being up on DigitalOcean. There are so many really awesome apps that make using DigitalOcean blow your mind, like stuff where you can just do incredible things from your phone, snap it right into your puppet management infrastructure, your vagrant infrastructure, use Drizzle with it. They have so many great like little indicators for your desktops. There's one in the Arch repository. There's a PPA for the Ubuntu desktop. So many cool tools built by the community around this API that you just get for free. And then they have a ton of really great tutorials. I mean, like not, not just great, the best tutorials on the web, how to set up SSH keys, how to set up OpenView. VPN server on Ubuntu 14.04. All free, all up on the DigitalOcean website. And you know what else? They want to double down on that. So they're hiring content editors. In fact, if you're a technical writer, go get a job at DigitalOcean because they're serious about this stuff. And this is the kind of company you want to work for where they really see the value in this kind of content. So they're hiring editors and they're paying people to write for them too. They're back at it again. They're taking more entries. Go check it out. And by the way, if you're a Linux sysadmin, they're also hiring those. So there's so many great opportunities over DigitalOcean. They're an awesome company, built their entire business around Linux. And if you use the promo code DO unplugged, one word, lowercase, you'll get a $10 credit. You try out that $5 rig two months for free. You guys, it's crazy nuts. It's so much fun. They're super fast. They have local repos. So those updates, they blow your mind. I'm not even kidding. Go try it out. Go create a droplet and install the updates. That alone will blow your mind. DigitalOcean.com, DO unplugged, go create something cool. My last droplet was a Minecraft server for my wife and son. They freaking love it. And before they do something crazy, I just take a snapshot. It's all possible with their straightforward, super simple interface. DigitalOcean.com, promo code DO Unplugged. And a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. You guys rock. You're on fire. Love it. DigitalOcean.com, DO Unplugged. The guys are wrecking it up. Okay, Noah. So uh, Ange came to me and she said, honey, I can't pay the bills. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't a good thing to hear from the wife. <laughs> and it's this damn Linux. And 
you never want to hear this when you're trying to switch a new user over to Linux. So no. uh, the problem was is she had a pretty fancy spreadsheet that she created in a newer version of Excel. It was a .xls file. XL, what, XLSX? Yes. And this is like an imitation of LibreOffice Calc? Yeah, basically it's like a knockoff, but uh, they've sort of like messed up the UI really bad, so it's hard to use. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, I see. They I just see. have like these huge buttons across the top. Uh, and it's, it's more recent. And so uh, they don't – and the other thing is uh, – this is really weird, but it's like this standalone binary application. It's not available in any repo. And you have huh. to buy it directly from this Microsoft company. And then, like, you can download it, but you have to run this weird proprietary installer that doesn't add it to your package repo. And really? Th- yeah, yeah. And they're not even Linux executables. So that was a huge huh. way. So that didn't work out. Couldn't use it. Couldn't install it. I couldn't go in with Microsoft Office. But then... It sounds like that company's out of touch with reality. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Well, then I found out they're trying this new thing called Office 365, an online version of Microsoft Office. Oh, yes. So like a ripoff of Google Docs. Right. Actually, so I went for the business essentials because, you know, I'm a business and I had business to take care of. So it's $5 a month or about like 60 bucks if you buy it for a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm thinking I'm, – I'm getting, I'm getting this for her because, you know what, I wanted to stay on Linux. And if the price I have to pay is 60 bucks, so that way she gets access to Office, then I never have to worry about this again. Right? That's, or five times that. Yeah, right? Right. That's what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Then I discovered when you pay $5 a month, you don't just get like Google Docs and and Google Spreadsheets. Like that's all I wanted for $5 a month. In fact, I didn't want anything more than that. You get like the entire Microsoft Business Enterprise suite. You get like Active Directory on demand. You get Exchange. You get Mobile Sync. You get provisioning of user accounts. You get calendaring, groupware. You get uh, shared OneDrive storage. You get your own customized domain for all of it. You can do branding with all of it. Like it is this massive, total, overarching competitor to Google Apps for business. It is a beast of a service. And she she has every she can she has her own Exchange server now. Like every it's, so you don't just get Office, which was a little intense. It was more than I really wanted, but uh, nonetheless, I log in and I discover. That you can't upload, at least from what I could tell, you can't upload into Excel from the local file system. The only way to open really? up an existing document in Word or Excel online is to either import it from Dropbox or to open it off of OneDrive. Yeah, I was going to say, if you up- I think that is their prescribed method, right? Put the document into OneDrive. And then you can access it through, uh, yeah. through the – But you, you uh, see the slippery slope I'm on. So I go from I'd like my wife to be able to open up this spreadsheet to now my wife is a OneDrive user. She's uploading files to OneDrive. She's you know importing them into Excel. Like it's just this slippery lock-in slope. So to be so to be clear, so your expectation was that she would have the file locally, but able but able to edit well, it and manipulate it in the cloud. I guess I feel like that's a little unrealistic. No, nah, because you know, like in Google Docs, you can upload a file directly into Google Docs, and yes, then it's stored in Google Drive. But right, I don't know. So so it's semantics then at that point. You're uploading it to OneDrive, or you're uploading it to Office 365. But for her, the semantics matter because you have to upload it to OneDrive first. So from like a user perspective, like you have to go to the OneDrive right. area, upload right. a file, and then you can. Yeah, but good. in theory, in theory, you should spend you should spend maybe ten minutes picking files that she needs to use and put those up, and then once they're there, you should never need to pull them back down. You, everything yeah. should just remain there. And you edit them, right? Yeah, I think so. And if you ever create a new document, it's always going to automatically be uh, saved in OneDrive. Yes, that's true. And but see, then this is also what I'm concerned about. See, I was hoping she'd be able to download them locally and save them in our own cloud folder. And see, mm-hmm. I'm, now what I'm worried about is this OneDrive stuff is sort of wedging out. The one, the the one, the own cloud usage, because now I've yeah. got. 
Yeah, but I mean, let's so so to summarize, you went to Microsoft and expected to be able to integrate a Microsoft solution with another open source. And now that was the recommendation of the mum room last time we talked about. You know what I really wanted? It's a good recommendation. It's I just, a good recommendation. And I want to go solve the problem. What I want is I want to go to I want to go to docs.microsoft.com. And I want word. Mm-hmm. I want a word editor in my web browser. I actually want spreadsheet. I, want, I guess I want spreads.microsoft. She just needs to be able to open up a spreadsheet. Right. You know. Right. So okay. So this. But I just wanted to walk you through my logic train on this, like why I was going down the Office 365 route. I so right. just to complete the picture because I did try something else, and I'm going to tell you about that. And this I think going to be my recommendation. But just to complete the Office 365 picture, what I opted to do is I went into Chrome and I made the Office 365 site a standalone app for Excel. And so I was able to put an Excel icon down in her GNOME dock. And she has a little Excel icon that when she clicks, it opens up a dedicated Chrome window and launches what looks a lot like Excel. It's not a, it's awesome. Yeah. It's not a one-to-one, but uh, she launched it and uh, she dug it and she thought it was okay. So what's great about that is you say it's not a one-to-one, but the reality is Microsoft changes Microsoft office. So freaking gosh darn much. Yeah, that's true. Really? What, what is one-to-one now would not be one-to-one in nine months anyway. Well, and for her, uh, I think in a way this works because, you know, she is also, she still has a Mac, although she hasn't been using it very much. But if she did move back or wanted to use it for something, the files would be there, I guess. And I don't have to worry about getting office for her stupid Mac now. So that's good, I guess. (laughs) I'm not like thrilled about it, but. When we're so if we talk about the lesser of two evils. Three sixty five is very much the lesser of two evils between that and the actual office suite for a number of reasons. One is, like you said, it works on Linux, and two, um, you're going to upgrade your regular office suite for the three or four hundred dollars or whatever it is anyway, and, and then you get you know four years of use. Uh, essentially before you yeah. before you have to upgrade. Yeah. The reality is most businesses are upgrading every one, if not two years at most, and so now you're getting that. If you if it's really see, would you say sixty dollars a year? That's, yeah, yeah. That's actually that's pretty. That's actually a pretty competitive offering. It's not bad if if you figure it's kind of a business standard, and and it's nice right. to be able to say you can do this under Linux now. So I totally mm-hmm. I dig that. There is another route that I'm going to have her try for a little bit and see what she thinks, and and only she can really tell me about the true compatibility because I've tried to open up her spreadsheets, and you know I'm a, I'm a total spreadsheet idiot, and I, they look like they work fine to me. But it's uh it's Kingsoft Office. And uh, they have like a very competitive. I know, I know. I know you're pretty familiar with this, right? They have a competitive-looking um, spreadsheet program that, in some ways, has sort of a ribbon, a ribbon UI. It's supposed to have fantastic compatibility with uh, Excel spreadsheets. It's it comes out of China, so some people are a little uncomfortable with that, I guess. But uh, and it has it has like a, it has like full importing of uh, the more recent 2010 style files. You can switch and toggle between different UI styles, which is kind of neat. And has the benefit of being a local app and it's free it's not open source but the cost it's cost free so it's uh and uh it's in uh, the arch repo is like wps office i think yeah wps office is the arch repo uh package so it's called wp wps office now and uh it it i don't know if you have the uh, video version up noah but it looks like a, a it, it's definitely got a nicer ui even than say open office does yeah, yeah. I, I, we talked about it at last a couple weeks ago, and I mm-hmm. looked into it then. Now, did you look into uh, Calegra? I haven't looked into Calegra, no. No, I haven't. Okay, that's, that. the other one, that's the other one that I'm told. I haven't personally used it, but I've been told now by three different people that were previously Microsoft Office users that said LibreOffice wasn't cutting it for them, but Calegra did it. I have um, to look again, at that too. Kingsville, well, this, is, again, this is looking really yeah, solid. It, and the downside of, again, a Calegra is to the best of my, the best of my knowledge, it's not uh, – it, it's not uh, – it's not open source. Oh, it's not. 
Well, see, here's the thing. If I remember it, it came from K-Office, so I always thought it was, but somebody told me... No, I'm pretty sure it did. It was the old K-Office, and that's one of the reasons I haven't done this, because she doesn't have very much QT stuff on her system. Right. But I mean, I'd be willing to... install all the QT4, the KDU4-based libraries, but Caligra itself should work always fine for me. So, yeah, man. I give it a go. So they, uh, yeah, and it looks like the chat room agrees. They say, oh, wait, no, uh, Ram says it has worse compatibility compared to LibreOffice. Well, you know, I, I don't mind installing it on my machine and giving it a go for it. But right now, I know she can get it done with, uh, with Office 365. Like, I know that works, so I feel pretty good about that. The only thing I'm a little worried about is it sort of negates her need for own cloud a little bit. Or I'm going to say, hey, Ange, I now need you to use OneDrive, own cloud, and Dropbox. It's a bit of a mess, so I need to kind of work that out. But I feel like I feel like this is some good insights I'm getting to help other potential Linux switchers out there in the audience in the future. These are good little uh, bumps to hit. They're not they're not un- unsolvable, but they're stuff that if maybe you didn't have somebody helping you, would be a big sticky point. And so if we can learn these things, then maybe we can help people make that transition. So WPS Office is one, and if you don't mind giving Microsoft some of your hard earned dollars or whatever your currency is. Office 365. At least make it a business write-off, for God's sakes, people. That's what I did. Jeez. Uh, and and I got to say, if you're a little Google paranoid, you could totally you, – I mean, you, you, you literally – you get Outlook. You get Active Directory. You get you get everything. You get, you, get, you get all the Microsoft stuff for five bucks a month. And then you go like nine bucks a month and you get some other crap too. Like you get the actual like desktop apps and crap like that. So the $5 a month is just the web apps. From Microsoft, which if you're a Linux user, that's fine. That's all you need. If you if you've got some Windows in your life, I'm not going to judge you that much, but you can pay nine bucks. That's funny. That's funny. You'd think the people running Windows would get a cheaper deal. So, anyways, uh, WPS-community.org for the Kingsoft version of the WPS Office. That's WPS-community.org, and you can Google search for Office 365. And good luck to you because they've got like a hundred different websites you can land on to order that crap. It's like all other Microsoft products. It's super confusing. But uh, yeah, other than that, other than that one small complaint, <laughs> I, I think she's actually going to be okay. I think we're I think we're finally sort of in the green, Noah. The one thing we have to work out is the drive space issue. That's getting a little tight. And and really, actually, if you think about it, really, that's more of a monetary issue than everything else because we can. I'm just looking here. We can order an M.2 uh, drive. Uh, and has she had a one terabyte before. Yeah. So I don't know if they make one quite that big. Oh, they do. The uh, Samsung has the Evo. It is four hundred and sixty-five bucks, and we can get a one terabyte. Hmm. I wonder if they. Yeah, I wonder what she would need. She and I have been talking about you know changing her for, photos to drop that down, and maybe we could buy with a five twelve. But I'll talk to her tonight about that. See what she wants yeah. to do. Yeah, if we do a five, that cuts the price in almost half. It's yeah. Uh, we might it's we have, maybe we pick that up on Fridays when you're down here this weekend. Yeah. Yep. Noah's going to be in town uh, for the Linux Action Show on Sunday. And uh, I got a few things I'm doing to get ready around here for you because I know you have some shenanigans in the works. What kind of shenanigans are you up to while you're out here this weekend? I have uh, – well, here's the thing. I, I, I had more shenanigans uh, when I start, when I originally started planning this trip because the huh. original thing I was going to do was – well, I was going to build a box to, uh, to fix your HDMI capture and then fix the Nook. But actually, sounds like for the most part you got the Nook thing straightened out thanks to System76. Yeah, and- at least for now I'm, I'm using their Meerkat, although I do have to send it back at some point. Right. Well, so maybe we'll still tackle that, and then uh, and then I was uh, and then I need to fix that uh, that other HDMI capture because even if we have it replaced, yeah, that'd be sweet. We huh? can still use the it, we can either use it as a backup or we can put it in the mobile production rack. You know what I really you know what would be an awesome, totally crazy, not going to happen stretch goal. What's that? Is if we could dig up some extra hardware around here 
and put OBS on it and give me that secondary streaming machine so I don't have to reboot the stream anymore between shows. Okay, it's going to happen. Because then, then we would have our live stream powered by Linux. I've just decided it's going to happen. I, well, I, it's, a, it's a stretch goal, but I think we might be able to make it this weekend. I don't know if we have the hardware for it, but maybe we can move things It's going to happen. I, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, Noel will be in studio. You know what's funny, though? Uh, Rotten went to all that trouble to make the, that really great art, uh, the frames, which were tweaking like my look and Noah's look still, but the frames themselves look amazing on this week's episode of Linux Action. Thank you, Rotten Corpse, again for for making some great frames for us. We have a nice, consistent look for the show now. And, of course, we finally get it rolled out, and now Noah's going to be in studio. So I don't know how well, that's going to work. How do the, those well, I mean, So, I mean, yeah, we, we can have to tweak those frames. But the reality is I might be there this week, but the remaining 50-some weeks in the year. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> I know. No, it's good. It's just, it's just ironic that we finally got that all in, and then the next following episode we're going to probably undo it because it doesn't really fit for – yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. We'll figure uh, something out. In that case, I'll just make one. I'll make, I'll make an extra an overlay for when he's in. Uh, like a one-shot yeah. camera? Because, yeah, we're both on one camera mm. in that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's gonna, but it's going to be fun. And uh, it's going to be a packed episode because we'll be doing the Fedora 22 review. And we're going to interview the folks from the Autotest uh, site. Right, Rotten? Is that Autotest? Is that what it is? I'm blanking on his name. Yeah, Autotest. Yeah, and these are the folks. Lucas. Lucas, thank you. Lucas from Autotest. Autotest is the project behind the automated testing of the Linux kernel, Ubuntu, Red Hat. Like whenever like you hear a, a big project saying, we automatically test our builds for automated QA every single day to ensure quality. When you hear them say that, they're probably using Autotest. So we want to talk to Lucas and say, hey, you know, you are the folks behind all of these projects that we depend on and making sure that they are doing build really good solid builds. And hey, by the way, this is really important for rolling software too. Obviously, that's my angle a little bit. Uh, so we want to talk to Lucas this Sunday, which is great, right? Because so on Sunday, we're going to talk to Lucas about auto testing for build quality. And today on Unplugged, we talked to Michael about benchmarking, two sort of similar veins. And I thought it's great. It's, if, you are, if you listen to both shows, I think they're going to fit together really well. But here's the catch. That interview with Lucas, is probably going to air in a couple of weeks or a week or so. We'll probably air the Fedora 22 review this Sunday. So if you show up live, you're going to get extra show because we're only going to air one of the two segments first. And uh, But we'll record them both this Sunday since Noah's going to be in studio with the Fedora 22 review and that interview. Join us on Sunday, jblive.tv, 10 a.m. Pacific. Then the faux show after that. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that in your local time zone. I also... Just wanted to give a mention. Ange was intending to join us for the uh, ThinkPad uh, transition, uh, the Linux switch update, because she has a lot more to share. Um, but her mom is in the hospital today, and she needed to be with her. So uh, my thoughts are with Ange and her mom, and uh, she will hopefully join us maybe next Tuesday, because uh, it's it's fun to see her enjoy it. You know, the, I, I come down. I mean, every now and then, she, like she runs into issues, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll fix that. But uh, more often than not, she's smiling, which is pretty pretty fun because if you guys listen for a while, you know this has not always worked out so well. <laughs> so so it's kind of a nice change of pace to have her say, oh, this is so cool. I love how it does X. Uh, so maybe we'll get her to uh, share some of that when she joins us next Tuesday. In the meantime, though, I want to tell you about something you should try out, and then we'll get it to Fedora 22, and that is Linux Academy. Go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged right now. Once you go there right now to get our special discount, you go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and you'll get our 33% discount. Linux Academy is a great service set up by people that had a vision before I did. I wish I would have thought of this. This is totally brilliant. It's created by people truly truly enthusiastic and passionate about Linux and open source and all of the technology in the ecosystem around that. Uh, Why do I tell you that? Why does that matter? 
Why am I telling you that when this is a training website designed for people who love Linux? Because there's a lot of training resources online. There's, there's crappy YouTube videos. There's generalist sites that uh, get paid billions because they teach you everything from fixing your refrigerator to changing the tire on your car to Adobe After Effects. And there is a place in the market for that, obviously. But that's not what you need. You need stuff created by people that truly care about Linux and open source. You guys know that makes a difference, and that's why I tell you where Linux Academy comes from. Before we brought them on as a sponsor, I sat down on the phone with them and talked for a long time about where they came from, what their passions were, where they're going, why they're doing this. And in fact, we actually hit the pause button a little bit early on in our relationship, and we said, why don't we hit pause? Because you guys are about to do something really cool. And I'll tell you what that is in just a second. And once you do that, I think you're going to be perfect for my audience. And we waited a couple of months and they rolled that out. And, you know, they were, they were really on the ball with this whole thing. Like they told us what their vision was. And, man, did they, they just they only, they only executed on that. They, they overshot and they achieved even more. So I was super impressed. We brought them in then as a sponsor right away. And they've been with us every single week since then because they're perfect. Here, here's the feature they were working on that I knew you guys were going to love is they were working on integrating their lab system to spin up automatically in the courseware. So you just get to that spot in the courseware and the virtual machines just start up in the back end, give you an SSH login, and you're working on a real Linux box. But the part that was really genius is they said, we're going to have it so you can choose any Linux distro in your courseware. So the, the system is smart enough where if you chose CentOS or you chose Debian for your courseware, when it gets to that part in the courseware, then they'll just spin up a Debian VM or a CentOS VM. And then almost every week that we have a spot, there's something new to talk about. I love these nuggets, these single how-tos. Just get in there and do something real quick. Uh, in fact, check this out. They just updated it. If you go to linuxacademy.com, start, start by going to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, but then check out their nuggets section. They've been adding to this all the time because it's quick content. It's not, you don't have to have a whole course on it. just something you need to know to make you better at doing your job, make you faster at doing your job, make you a little more confident at doing your job, or maybe help you learn something so you can get a new job. So if you go to linuxacademy.com slash nuggets, here's a new one they just posted. VirtualBox, clone a VM and change a UUID using the command line. Here's another VirtualBox, running a headless VM mode, uh, building a firewall with IP tables, another quick nugget. How great is that? These are just quick video courses, and when you log in, you just take it and watch it, and you're done. Uh, creating a Pixie Boot server, setting up Linux single sign-ons, all this stuff. Look at all these freaking nuggets they have over here. You could just spend all your time right there if you wanted to and just learn individual things and get better at each thing, setting up SSH keys, editing an ISO image, working with DOSBox, securing SSH, I love that one, configuring uh, Linux kernel parameters, writing custom Java services, how Nmap can be used to compromise your system, how NetStack can be used to compromise your system, MD5 checksums and how to use them, all individual topics that we could all probably stand a little bit more on. LinuxAcademy.com slash nuggets to see those. Start by going to LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. You get our 33% discount. They have new stuff they're rolling out all the time, like the new DevOps courseware, the Red Hat certified stuff. The AWS stuff is always being updated. First with first on the scene with Docker and the best material on Docker. All of it. Linux Academy, more than that. I, 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 I literally could spend the whole show telling you it all. They have an unbelievable amount of content, and that's why the subscription service makes so much sense. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged, and a big thank you to Linux Academy for freaking rocking our face with the awesome support and creating a service that's truly great for Linux users. I really love being able to say that. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. All right, so Fedora 22 is installed on a uh, System76. was very nice to send me a test Bonobo. It's a couple of, it's like a couple of generations old, uh, but that's fine. It's still like a Core i7 with, uh, I think it has 120 gigabyte SSD in it. I think it has 8 gigabytes of RAM in it. Uh, an NVIDIA 7 series um, GPU dedicated. 
you know, 17 inch screen, really nice laptop. I love the Bonobo series. So this is such a good machine to test this stuff on. Absolutely love it. So today, Fedora 22, or was it yesterday? No, it's today. Fedora 22 was released. And we'll be talking mostly about the workstation spin. Of course, the big feature in Fedora 22 is GNOME 3.16, which means you're going to get them new notifications. The, uh, that little bar down at the bottom is gone now, and your icons are off in this little tray area off to the side. I happen to like it. I know some people freaking hate it. Uh, and they've done a few tweaks to the default GNOME setup that you don't get on your standard GNOME uh, desktop. The one that you don't care about is that little Fedora logo uh, that's in the bottom of the corner is actually an extension. So whatever background you change, I believe it stays overlaid. Uh, I, th- I, thought that, I thought that was kind of interesting. They've done a few other tweaks, too, like uh, when your terminal completes a command, it'll generate a notification using the new GNOME notification system. That's a Fedora-specific tweak. That is not in general GNOME. I thought that was kind of an interesting little, like, where they chose to make their tweaks was kind of funny. Uh, of course, GNOME 3.16's backend has better OpenGL support. You have the improved Edwadia themes. GNOME's image viewer has been redesigned. Files now comes with bigger icons, thumbnails by default, reorganized menus. Uh, it, this is cool. I really love to see Fedora doing this. Installation of GStreamer codecs, fonts, and certain document types now handled by software. And this is where I realized Fedora's, for me as an end user, Fedora's edge comes up over distributions like Arch. All this stuff I just said, except for the terminal completion thing, it's been in Arch for weeks. But what Arch can't do is sort of have a unilateral decision on how we're going to deliver something, and everything pivots and does that now. And what Fedora does, like when they rolled out GNOME software, well, that's just how you get stuff now. You know, like codecs, um, Jeep, you know, you, you need something installed, like it updates, Everything is just done through GNOME software. So with Fedora, not only do you get the latest and greatest software like GNOME 3.16 and all these great improvements, but it's presented in a way where it feels like a more cohesive package than it does when you put it together yourself. And uh, so my, in my initial impressions with Fedora are really positive. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to finally um, become a little more comfortable with the installer. I have a little bit of complaints still about how you'd partition with the installer, but the installer's looking pretty good. All of it's pretty nice. It's pretty fast. Graphical boot's pretty good. I did have a major technical snafu. I'm going to tell you guys about that. But before I get into that part, did anybody have any Fedora 22 experiences in the mumble room they want to share with us? So I, uh, I've been playing with, uh, with Fedora a little bit. Um, I haven't downloaded the, the official uh, ISO yet. I was just playing with the, with the beta one. Um, but uh, I, I, have you had a chance to play with DNF at all? Yeah, I've only installed a few things with DNF, but there's a couple of interesting things about it. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yeah, DNF seems to be faster. Uh, here's a couple other things that I thought was interesting about DNF. Updates that don't work, you know, like a bad update or something, it's just totally skipped. Uh, before in Yum, you had to do dash, dash, skip, dash, broken, but now DNF just does that by default. Uh, repositories that 404, DNF doesn't lose its crap. It just skips right over them, doesn't care, which is nice because like some of the RPM Fusion stuff isn't up to date. All or There's a few repos for Fedora 22 that are up to date. I think Fusion is now. Um, when you remove a package with DNF, it will automatically remove any dependent packages that were not explicitly installed by the user. And this one, I wonder if it's biting me in the ass because I feel like I couldn't get my software installed at one point. DNF will check for updates in the background every hour. Or, oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. By default, DNF will check for updates in, in configured repositories hourly, starting 10 minutes after the system boots. So after your first 10 minutes, 
And then every hour after that, it checks for updates. And I don't know if this is why, but I launched software and I tried to install um, uh, oh, a re- re-edit, a retext, whatever, the markdown editor. And it just hung. It never installed. And I was wondering if maybe it was because DNF was trying to do an update in the background too to check for updates. Uh, what's really nice is uh, the uh, the GNOME software. So when I search, so if I do gparted in uh, the in in GNOME ser- in search, it's doing a really instant good job of like pulling results out of GNOME software too. So if I don't have gparted installed, it'll show up, and it's just one click, and it's installed. And no 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 password has to be entered. Nothing. It's really nice. So that's largely why I like to stick with Fedora, at least on one of my machines, and why I kind of consider it my my main distro is because I do so much work in the server sphere where we have so much Red Hat Enterprise. Yum is going to die. DNF is going to be the eventual replacement yeah, for it. Yeah, and I in, get a chance uh, to well, play in, with the stuff in Fedora twenty two. The yum command is symlinked to DNF now, right? And then it gives you a a, a, a warning saying uh, yum is deprecated. So, and the same thing happened with the service command, right? If you, I, and yeah, I don't know if yep. this still works in, in Fedora, but it definitely works in Red Hat 7. If you type in service space SSHD space stop, it redirects that to system control, which is great for people like me who, so I'm going to use DNF now for a couple of years before uh, RHEL 8 comes out. And when RHEL 8 comes out and everyone's going, oh, well, now, well, and this is assuming they even replace YUM with DNF in RHEL 8, if that happens, and everyone else is saying, oh, this is something new. I'm going to say, well, I actually have been playing with it for three years. So it's great. Um, and that that is yeah, fundamentally nice. why I continue to use uh, Fedora. Uh, so a couple of big changes for uh, graphical desktops have hit this version. And I think some people have hit some snags with those. And that's where one of my snags was. But, uh, oh, Minimac, I wanted to give you a chance to chime in. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, actually, this is exactly the line where I was going next. Lib, lib input. Yes, exactly. Jump in on that, would you? Yeah, I would like to. So, um, as I told you before, I'm running this on a Chromebook, Acer C720P, and the touchpad was not the best one using the Synaptics driver, and it's working quite better with libinput, but libinput has less features than Synaptic has. So some people that are upgrading from Fedora 21 to Fedora 22 will have some problems using their touch pay, uh, pad in a normal way they were using it before. Yeah, uh, I noticed immediately under the Bonobo that the touchpad has worked like there's just something different about it. It it feels like maybe they put butter underneath my mouse cursor. It just is a little smoother. It feels like it's really locked onto my finger. I like the speed. I've heard complaints, though. I've heard people complaining the speed doesn't work for them. It's a little glitchy. On the Bonobo, it's great. It lib input is great. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be like now going back to other distros. I think I'm going to notice a difference. So I loved it too, basically, but I have some special workflow. So I'm using um, a software for mouse gestures, and I was not able to do oh, my sure. normal mouse gesture yeah. with libinput. Yeah. So in the end, I just removed that package, and I wanted to blacklist the, the libinput. I was yeah. not able to. Oh. So I removed I removed uh, libinput, and now I'm working on Synaptics again, and I have to configure it with xconfig. Oh, boy. God, now you feel like old Linux. <laughs> uh, so that's the one big change for X users. The other big change, yeah, you, you can use, okay, I will try that. Black, so Blackout says you can use xf86-video-lib input on Arch to try it out. I might. Um, the other big change is GDM, if, you have an open, if you're using an open source graphics driver, GDM, the graphical login manager, not GNOME itself, but GDM, uses Wayland by default. 
I know that's going to cause some people problems because it caused me problems. Essentially, what would happen is I'd get grub, I'd hit enter, I would begin booting, I would get the graphical Fedora boot screen, which is quite nice, where it fills the Fedora logo up as it lo- as it boots. Then it would hang with a completed boot logo for about 35 seconds, and then it drops down to a text console, and I get some sort of libc string errors. or so- I can't even tell what it is. I get some string of errors, and the system never boots after that. Or it never goes forward. It's, it appears to hard lock even, because okay, I can't control it, delete, I can't ping it, anything like that. And uh, my fix, unfortunately, and I have this in the show notes, if you guys run into this, if you, after your installation, even though your, ex, even though your live session worked fine, if after you reboot and it go, your, after first boot, it doesn't go into the graphical session, you can go into slash Etsy slash Grub and then you, or I'm sorry, slash, no, not Grub, slash Etsy slash GDM because you're changing GDM not to use Wayland. So go to slash Etsy slash GDM slash custom.conf. Edit custom.conf in Etsy GDM and uncomment Wayland enable equal false. When you un- and it's already in the file. You just uncomment the file and save it and reboot the machine, and it won't try to use Wayland for GDM. Now, here's the, here's the tricky thing. Because when it tries to launch Wayland, it hard locks the machine. Your options are to do no mode set at Grub, uh, you know, edit your Grub boot line and add no mode set, and then get in uh, to your basic session and then add that, uh, remove that comment. Or what I did, because I knew this was going to happen after my second installation because I wanted to change my partition layout anyways, is before I rebooted the installer from the live environment, I just did a mount command and I looked where my root file system was mounted at and I just edited the uh, custom.conf file right there from the live session. And all you, all you have to do is just remove that uh, comment line just, or to leave the Wayland enabled, Wayland enable equal false, leave that, just remove the hashtag, the 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 print, whatever, the number sign, so it's not a comment anymore. And then when you reboot, your system will boot just fine. You just have to disable Wayland, and that solved my problem. And now I'm able to use the open source driver. I have full 3D acceleration under GNOME. I'm getting all the fancy OpenGL effects, and my system fa- it boots, and it is running great. I've done updates since then. I've updated, uh, I've updated the base system. I've been installing applications. I can't believe how fast it runs. I can't believe how fast this thing runs. It's so fast. So my initial impression with Fedora 22 was a little rocky, because it never is a good impression after first boot to fail to get to X. That always kind of sucks, especially when it's really reliable hardware and you just had a live environment that was working, so you know something's funky. But almost immediately to me, it was probably like a Wayland thing. So uh, there was a bug. Now, here's, here's the only thing that might be tricky for you, is if you run into this, the way the Fedora project addresses this is they have a common problem section in their release notes, and they say it's a MacBook-specific problem. So they'll say MacBook graphics aren't working, uh, and they'll, they, even in the wiki they say on certain MacBook laptops with, Google gra- with dual graphics card, the Fedora 22 Live environment boots fine, but after installation, there's just a black screen with no boot, boot splash, followed by the GNOME login screen. This seems to be an issue with Wayland, the upcoming windowing system used by the GNOME login screen. But it's actually not a MacBook issue, because I had it on a Bonobo. So I would bet it's probably a Nuvu driver problem or a specific model, so yeah. Uh, so uh, Ray asked, does the GNOME software tool show known, 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 no, uh, GNOME apps? Jeez, I can't talk today. No. And actually, this is another problem with Fedora 22. Uh, and I have a link in the show notes about this. There is sort of a lack of apps in there right now because there is a app description file that has to be updated in order to be displayed in GNOME software. 
that went mandatory starting with Fedora 22, and most of the projects that are in GNOME software have not submitted this app description file. So there is a lot of apps missing right now from GNOME software. Developers will be re-adding those description files, or the package maintainers will be re-adding those description files um, over the next few days. So you might be a little surprised by a lack of items in GNOME software. Now, a little bit of silver lining here. Red Hat has hired or is actually moving another one of their developers to work full-time on the Nouveau project or work more on the Nouveau project. So while I just ran into this issue with Fedora 22, maybe it's going to be fixed by Fedora 23, and this has got to be good for Wayland. Red Hat's letting another one of their developers focus on improvements to the open-source NVIDIA Linux graphics driver. Uh, Ben Skeggs uh, is already a Nouveau DRM driver maintainer, and David Arley, the overall DRM subsystem maintainer and contributor to Nouveau, are uh, already employees of Red Hat. So Hans will be joining. He's been no- mostly known for his Linux USB contributions in the past. One year ago, he joined the Red Hat graphics team where he's worked on various Xorg and Wayland things. And uh, he was also one of the developers that worked on libinput that we just talked about. So now with the libinput work settling down, his next course of action is going to be working on Nouveau. Right now, it's not known specifically what he'll be focusing on, but he's still learning more about GPU driver programming. Uh, but it's really good to see Red Hat doing this, and he's already shared his new focus with the Nouveau uh, community via their development mailing list. So Red Hat's putting some more, some more weight behind this. So perhaps by Fedora 23, this was going to be a, a problem of the past. It's just, yeah, like Blackout says, it's going to, or Corky saying, it's a transition. Right, Corky? It's a, a transition to Wayland's going to be bumpy for a little while, don't you think? I do think that, um, and there's a lot of work to do, but it's very clear that the Fedora team are focused on this. This is one of their uh, main features as a Linux distribution. It only really matters inside the Linux community, but it's a big difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm looking forward to. I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to run it for the rest of the week. I was running the beta versions. Uh, they also have the same Wayland problem. So I was hoping. In fact, I, I think I even sent Noah like a telegram the other night. I'm like, I'm hoping they fix this in the final ISO because this is the pain in the butt. They didn't. But, uh, but I, I'm not going to hold it against them because th- those things happen during these kinds of transitions, and it's easy enough to fix, and it is documented. Not necessarily documented correctly, but it's documented. So now that this stuff's out of the way. I feel like I've got a great setup. I've got a great performing system. It's on a great rig. I'm gonna, it's going to be my main system for the rest of the week. And then on Sunday, we'll give you the full take and see what I've been able to make of it. Both uh, Noah and I will be running it for the rest of the week. Noah, any thoughts so far before uh, we close this topic up? Nope. Nope. Uh, I mean, we'll have uh, – I'm sure – you know, it's, it's hard to give any real feedback the day the – like I haven't even mm-hmm. installed the actual ISO yet. So I, I don't want to pass any, any of the problems I'm having – I don't want to talk about them until I actually get the ISO. And then, really, you don't know all the problems you're going to have until you've actually used it for like a week. Yep. Uh, are you going to run it on a laptop? Is that what you'd be running on? Yep. I, I, so my thought process on that is my, I have a workstation at my house, my main machine at my house, which does have Fedora. But I won't switch that over. I, I'm kind of in the same uh, boat as Michael. I'll wait for a couple of days, maybe yeah. in a couple of weeks, until yeah. everything kind of fleshes out. And yeah. then once all that's smoothed over and I try everything on my laptop, then I'll move my actual workstation over. That makes sense. I like it. Yeah, I uh, I could see my I could act, I really can see myself one day maybe becoming a primary Fedora user. Not yet, I don't think. Maybe I'll let you know on Sunday. Maybe I'll use this for a couple of days and be, fall in love. There's a couple of tools out there I've already found that I really like. So it'd just be a matter of getting some of my favorite applications I've had problems with in the past. I'm looking at you, Rupat Telegram. I'm looking at you. So I'll let you guys know. I'd like to hear what you guys think. Go over to linuxactionshow.reddit.com and uh, leave us your feedback for Fedora 22. 
And any tricks, tricks or tips that you would pass along to us to make it a better experience that maybe we could even pass along to the audience in Sunday's review? Love that too. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com is a great place to make this show even better. You can also email us. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose Linux Unplugged from the dropdown and send us in a note. We love that. That's really great. In fact, uh, I'll try to get to a bunch of those next week because I don't think I've read any notes for a couple of weeks. I guess I'm a bit of a jerk. Sorry about that. So we'll get to those soon. Also, we'd love to have you join us live. And don't forget, we're doing it at 10 a.m. Pacific next week. Just next week, we're doing a special early recording right after Tech Talk Today. So show up if you'd like for Tech Talk Today at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. And then just stick around for Linux Unplugged right after that. Should be fun to do. It'll be a morning edition of the Linux Unplugged show. And then I'll be hitting the road to go pick up some family. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. We'll see you right back here next week. Looks like uh, Mr. Larable has uh, left the room, I think. That was nice of him to stop by, though. That was nice. Good show, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, now we need titles. JBTitles.com. Now we vote to the death. Mwahaha. Has anybody, been trying, has anybody tried out the uh, plasma spin of uh, Fedora? Anybody? Anybody? Nope. Ooh, is that running Plasma 5? I believe it is. Nice. Yeah. Mm, poor Mandriva. Yeah, I've been running nothing but Plasma 5 on Arch lately. How do you like it? Oh, it's so good. I've been such a GNOME, GNOME fan for like ever since I started you know, being part of Linux. And then really? Plasma 5 came out. I'm like, oh. Same here. No, uh, no, I started no. trying KD5, uh, <gasps> Plasma 5 uh, two weeks or ago or something. Yeah, and you like it. Yeah, but uh, the what is it? Dolphin File Manager doesn't have Qt five support, I think. So yeah, the yeah. theme looks screwed up. So I'm uh, I'm back to GNOME again. <laughs> so I'm gonna wait for the Qt five things to work out correctly. I I tell you, Plasma five is really great. I I mean, it is really really great. I just I still think it's too many options for me, but really it comes down to my sound problems. Um, I I, yeah. I I I switch for weekends. Like I go on vacations to Plasma five, and I'm like, oh. It's so geeky and cool, and they've thought of so many neat things. And then I get burned out, and I go back to GNOME. Yeah, same here. And I'm really in love with the window manager, Kwin, and the Wobbly Windows. Yes, uh, yes, there. yes. Since I moved to Chris, Debian, you... I stopped this draft. Chris, you mentioned once that Ubuntu, uh, not, not Ubuntu, sorry, GNOME, has the great advantage now with 3.16 that you almost do not realize that you're running, you're running a desktop environment, mm-hmm. and that's the way to go for me. 
I like that too. Just totally out of the way. And except for when I when I need it, it is there. Like when I need to search for files or when I need to check my calendar or manage, you know, a setting, it's there and gives me, I think, one of the best UIs to do that. But primarily, most of the time, I forget I'm even using a desktop environment, which I like. You Locking see, on my side. dual screen desktop here, I'm running E17 with GNOME integration. So for me, the switch is E17. You don't realize that you're using it; it's just there. So we should. Do, we should, the title should probably have something to do with the with our chat with Michael or with Fedora 22. I would think. It's jbtitles.com. I like Fedora Explorer. I don't know. It's clever, but it doesn't really tell me about what we talked about. You know, you know, you know. You wow. Know? Says we talked about Fedora. Get it out of here. Uh, Fedora isn't yummy anymore. That's clever. Lock in, slip and slide. I like that, but it doesn't really, again, cover what we talked about. Exploring Fedora, yeah, I guess. Uh, Chris, by the way, uh, you're using GNOME 3.16, right? Yes, sir. Uh, in the bottom left corner, if you don't, uh, if you're not using uh, top icons, uh, is the drawer like vibrating if you put your mouse uh, in the wrong position? Yes, it does vibrate sometimes. Let's see. Okay, then it's not only me, because it does that on uh, yeah, three of my computers. It kind of shakes too sometimes. Yeah, it shakes a yeah. little bit. Yeah. So it's like the top uh, left corner, but it vibrates and acts yes, weirdly. Yes. Yes. I wonder if they do that on purpose or. I don't think so. But uh, if you turn on uh, off animations, it stops doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. But I want my animations. Right. Uh, Chris, may I just ask, uh, which age were you when you started using Linux? Well, I was still in high school, so I guess I was 18 or 19. 18, I guess, I suppose, is when I really first started 17 or 18, I suppose. I'm 33 nice. now. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm uh, 19 now, so... Uh, and I've used uh, Linux for the past two years. So I'm, some, I'm somewhere in the 15 or 16 year range. But okay. Yeah. What was the first distribution? Well, Android? I guess technically the first distribution I probably used was Red Hat something, and then Debian around the same time. We had two. We had a Red Hat and Debian system, but I didn't. They weren't my systems. Like I used them. I destroyed them. I accidentally did rm-rf on the root while I was using a system. I did all of those things. That's clever. Uh, yeah. But uh, the first time I actually Better. installed Mandrake or installed Linux for myself, like this is going to be my machine. I'm putting this on my computer now. It was Mandrake. So for me, I started with SUSE 6.1. So oh, I still yeah. have the box here yeah. and, and the huge book that came yeah. with it. It really, And yeah. then I started switching. I, I started switching from the different RPM distributions, landed with Mandrake. Then came a short Debian phase, and then Ubuntu started, and then I stayed with Ubuntu for a long time. Yeah, me too. Starting to feel like a noob here. My first distribution was 10.04. <laughs> My first was uh, 12.04. But, well, I'm only 19 now, and I was uh, 17 when I started. Well, not for the first time, but for the first nerdy time. I was going to say, Fedora. 15 was my first one, and that one's pretty old compared to now. Hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I remember. <laughs> that's funny. I remember when I remember when Fedora Core became a thing. I remember when they dropped yep. the core. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. In fact, what saved me from uh, from my Mandrake hate yeah. was Red Hat. Yeah. Was yeah. Red Hat? It was Red Hat. I think it was seven, and then yeah. and then they transitioned from Red Hat to to Rel and Fedora Core, yeah. and then they dropped the core. And I used and it was funny because. That's kind of what got me started on on Fedora was I used Fedora because it was the logical progression from Red Hat. And right. then I've stuck with every course since Fedora Core 1 all the way up and just upgraded my system. In fact, the original Fedora Core box I still have, I never I never nuke, I never nuke and paved it. I just kept upgrading it. And I think it is on Fedora Core 4 or 5, and it still works. I, I turned it on in a while. But it, that's a testament to it. I've never yeah. actually had to yeah. do anything with it. Yeah. Hey, you know, uh, changing topics for a second, just thinking about the Mandriva story or the Mandrake story or Mandriva company story, I think the Linux Action Show subreddit broke that story. I'm not positive, but because it was uh, the guy that submitted it linked – well, obviously we didn't break it because that German website or that French website did. But uh, I think we were the first U.S. website to have it. And then uh, uh, then and then uh, LWN and Pharonix picked it up. Nobody linked to us, though. But. Well, we were. The subreddit post was twenty minutes before the Pharonix post. And you know, I've also been noticing, and it's fine, I guess. I mean, it's it's a subreddit. It's a public subreddit. So what can I say? It's fine. Uh, but I've also noticed uh, several Softpedia stories based on uh, stories out of the subreddit. Seems to be a resource for a lot of people, which I guess in a way is pretty awesome. I mean, one of the one of the soapboxes we're on all the time is we need to improve the Linux press coverage, and if our subreddit's helping do that. Wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but I mean, well, shit, at least and it's something. The other thing, and the other thing is, too, is it would be nice if JB got some credit for yeah, the. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, just if you're lame, gonna just, just get kind of common decency, even if it's not, just, even if it's not copyright, and just, just, just say, a, you, know, a, you know, source link or something would be great, right? Or even, even if all they said was, we pulled this from the JB subreddit, we pulled Jupiter Broadcasting reported today, I mean, something. That would be nice. That would be nice. I guess the way to capitalize, yeah. See, the problem is they can always get it from our subreddit. Like, even if we had our own news, even if we publish that stuff on the site. But uh, all right, so right now Fedora Explorer is still our top title. I'm just not digging that. Fedora isn't yummy anymore. Coming in at number Fed two. Bench it. What's that? Fed up. Bench it. Yeah, it's okay too. Like, are you fed up? Fed up. Yeah, <laughs> fed up. Bench it. Yeah, it's not bad. None of these are really how awesome. About, how about? How about Fedora Milady? What, dude? What's that got to do with anything? Madriva Falls or, or, and Fedora or, Rises. Or Fedora Malinux. Madriva Falls and Fedora Rises. T- t- oh, I got it. I got it. Fedora Hipster. Fedorable Benchmarks. Fedorable Benchmarks. Oh, but then it sounds like you're Fedora, though. Uh, Madriva Falls, Fedora Rises. That's not bad. Well, he does use Fedora, so technically that's sort of relevant. Would it be too much advertisement using the name Foronix in it? I don't know. I think it would probably hurt the episode. Fedora gets benched, Fedora now in its future. I, I guess we'll go with Fedora Rises, Mandriva. What was it? What was it? What was it? Fedora Rises? That's Mandriva Falls. Fedora Rises. Fedora Rises, well, Fedora Mandriva, Mandriva and Mandriva Falls. Falls. Whichever one sounds more catchy to me. It's kind of long. Fedora Rises... And Mandriva Falls. Should it be Fedora Rises, comma, Mandriva Falls? Yeah, it doesn't really fall. I mean, they were about to die and they got yeah, that's or, true. Or revived and they still See, now dead. you're killing it. So me. it's kind of bad for that. How about something like uh, Mandriva passes away and Fedora... Fedora's I don't even think baby. there's a place for Mandriva in the title, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, it's too long and weird. yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. 
Uh, I think that's probably right. Let's see. Fedora. I don't even know if I necessarily need Fedora in the title since Sunday's Linux Action Show is going to be about Fedora. Uh, I mean, you're fed up with seeing Linux regressions. You're fed up because Fedora, because the program Fedora, and you're benchmarking. That's, okay, you make it a good pitch. You I'll give you that. Use Fedora anyway, just because it because it was uh, you know released today and anyway. So. Yeah, that's true. Mandreev's Mandreev is the big news. You think? I'm not so sure it is. In fact, I think the sad thing is that it's not big news. Well, I think that it it no. it makes everybody st- start thinking back. It's nostalgic. Yeah, yeah but to true. me, all it says is it's just verifying what I already thought years ago. So you had a guest. Yeah, we did have a yeah, guest. If you name it after the guest. Yeah, the, the the votes. Yeah, that's true. I do agree with that. It would be a good way to go. Uh, is Michael fed up with Bench? <laughs> uh, the regression killer, regression hater, uh, hating regressions. The the quest to kill the the quest to the quest to quell regressions. What about that? The quest to quell regressions. Regressions. The quest to quell. Regressions. No, quest to quell <laughs> regressions? Yeah. The, the quest... Uh, seems like just Linux books. Seems like bookmark, the... Linuxbenchmarking.com. Actually, not terrible. What about but... putting Linux performance on the record? Is that too long? Uh, how about just benchmarking Linux? That Actually, kinda... you already have Linux on the... Okay, Linux unplugged on the record. You can like already really have Linux unplugged. Based on benchmarks. It's on the record benchmarks. because it's the show. And it's still on the record because we're really recording the benchmarks and all about it. Benchmarking TNG. Uh, come on, come on. There's got to be something in here. Uh, the quest to quell... Fedora tip to Madriva. I actually kind of like the benchmarking Linux one. Doesn't that sound super boring, though? Well, here's the thing. The problem with the quest to quell... That's, that's really catchy, but it's like the least descriptive thing ever. Yeah, I know. What about Mandriva benched? Well, it's not bad. How about Mandriva sits the bench? Mm. Tip, uh, tip your fedora to Mandriva. This is tough. Or Mandriva bench no more. Microsoft buys Mandriva. That one keeps jumping out at me. That would get some clicks. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. Benchmarking benchmark. Should just name it clickbait. <laughs> That'd be good. Fedora. Linux gets bench. Michael, the regression terminator. See, that's funny to me. That's funny. Uh, let's see. America's next top band. But then suggestion. everyone's going to be Michael, what? Michael from Coda Radio? What? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's true. How about uh, you wouldn't believe what Michael does in his basement? <laughs> I like that, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Michael's yeah. basement. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We should put something about that basement in there. I guess we could do benchmarking. I mean, yeah, we could do benchmarking Linux. That is like our our basement benchmarking. Yeah, it kind of downplays what he's doing a little bit, though. Linux gets benched. Benchmarking Linux only has two votes. Uh, Basement benchmark. Linux coming off the bench. Uh, uh, Actually, no, I just type it America. Step into Laravel's basement. The. the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think we're gonna have to go with benchmarking Linux. Is as lame as that is. God, that seems lame. You know, that feels like a if committee we were compromise. Doing benchmark Linux. I would want to do benchmarks as well, instead of just porting on one site doing benchmarks. I would do a lot more involvement in that title. So say again. So what now? If we were doing benchmarking, as in the whole show's topic, I would want to 
also do my own benchmarks and report some fun findings back to the show. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like a title for a show where we're actually doing benchmarks, right? Yeah, I used to do file system benchmarks all the time. That's why I landed on XFS back in, like, 2004 anyway. Is the question, the title, something doable? Because if it is, you can ask, are you fed up? Engine. Uh, regression Terminator. Let's see. Uh, the quest. No, I got nothing with that. Let's see. There's got to be something in the fact that he benchmarks because he hates regressions. There's got to be a title there. Regressing on the bench. Which is terrible. Yeah. I think we're going to have to go benchmarking Linux as awful as it is. Even though, even, though, even though it kind of... And it is true because it is, it is actually benchmarking the Linux kernel. It literally is benchmarking Linux. Oh, oh, jeez. Get, get, get it out of here. Oh, oh. Call it benchmarking? Try to oh, actually, 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 we can the, just the use one sentence. That, we can use one sentence that Michael pulled off, which is uh, Linux graphics drivers are on pair with Windows. <laughs> so Linux pairs Windows. 11 years of... Okay, I do actually kind of agree. Actually, you know what, Micro89? I do agree. Actually, Micro89 is right. He's totally right. 11 years of Linux benchmarking is sort of a call-out to Pharonix and Michael, but also still about benchmarking. It doesn't make it sound like it's a, the episode itself is about benchmarking. But has he always been benchmarking? Ah, close enough. Maybe it's just news science. Close enough. I'm going to go with it. 11 years of, of Linux benchmarking. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually pretty good. That's actually, if you think about it, it is. Once you realize it's Larbell, it's uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a good shout out to him. You so. could do just a decade, a decade of Linux benchmarks, something like that. No, oh, well, it's even longer. Yeah, eleven shorter. <laughs> I know you're right. It's, it, it reads better, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Wow. Wow. Just when I was about to flush it too, right at the last moment. Uh, you know what? That that means we get a hello, everybody from Obama. Hello, everybody. Hey, look at us. We got.